are listening to a podcast by the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, where we're answering your questions like, did the United States respond appropriately to the spy balloon incident? And how can both countries safely de-escalate tensions in the future? With top China experts, we hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Oriana Schuyler-Mastro. I'm a center fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and a courtesy assistant professor of political science at Stanford, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. On behalf of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, I am so pleased to welcome our viewers to a discussion of the spy balloon incident, crisis management, and implications for U.S.-China relations. I'm joined today by Tyler Jost, an assistant professor of political science at Brown University, and Susan Thornton, who's a senior fellow with the Yale Law School China Center and previously acting assistant secretary of state for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Thank you both for joining me for this discussion. As a starting point, just in case our, our viewers hadn't uh, been paying attention and had heard the numerous stories and coverage of this incident. Maybe we can start with you, Susan. Can you just give us a few sentences as the lead diplomat of this group of what we should be uh, most focused on in the order of events between the United States and China over this incident? Yeah, well, just to recap really quickly, um, back in early February, and now we're recording this in mid-April, so it's been a couple of months. Uh, but just to recall, uh, the Chinese sent a very, very large uh, balloon with a lot of uh, intelligence gathering apparatus attached to it in uh, you know, near-Earth orbit over the United States in U.S. airspace. And it was drifting you know, for a long time from Alaska over Canada finally to Montana, where a local Montanan citizen spotted it, reported it to the newspaper. It went public. There was a very large orb in the sky visible. And at that point, there was quite a bit of attention being paid then by Congress, by um, a lot of people in the U.S. administration, uh, attempts to get in touch with the Chinese to tell, you know, find out what this is, what are they doing, why is this thing lingering over the United States, not really got uh, much of a response from the Chinese, which I think we will talk about in this uh, episode, but uh, then proceeded to uh, watch as the balloon kind of lingered over Montana and finally drifted out over South Carolina, where it was, of course, shot down. Uh, recovered, and now it's been in the hands of the FBI investigative service uh, to try to figure out what was going on. There's been a lot of speculation about a lot of aspects of this, but we actually don't have a lot of hard facts. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, it was a spy apparatus. It was in U.S. airspace. That's a violation of sovereignty. There was poor communication. It created a crisis, which probably should have been avoided. And we missed an opportunity to probably create a new norm around this kind of episode uh, going forward, which is unfortunate. Um, and I'll leave it. I'll leave it there for you to take up as you will, Oriana. Well, I am going to get back to you about like what are the norms around this incident in a second. But I first just want to turn to Tyler and say, and ask, you know, can you tell us a little bit about like what? why this was a big deal? I mean, for someone like me that focuses on these types of military issues, you know, China has been spies on the United States all the time. So what was your sort of impression when this story broke about why it created such uh, an incident between the two countries? Well, as Susan said, I think it's in very visceral terms, 
um, posed a question to the United States, which is what threshold of espionage and intelligence collection we're comfortable with accepting. Um, generally speaking, it's accepted that states spy on one another, um, but uh, there can be limits imposed by both sides on how much activity they're willing to permit. Something like this, which as Susan mentioned, was a violation of US sovereignty, um, does potentially cross a, a threshold. And as the United States sort of decided to intervene here uh, or, or um, uh, establish here, um, it was not willing to accept the idea that there would be aerial um, uh, air balloons collecting intelligence over um, US airspace in, in such a um, flagrant manner such that average U.S. citizens could look up in the sky and see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I do think we'll get back to kind of the, how the domestic politics plays out, because I think that was a big part of it is, you know, that people could actually see this happening while maybe some of the other discussions about China are not so sort of visible or visceral to, to the American people. Susan, can you give us a little bit about the norms around this? You know, I know the Chinese, you know, people ask me all the time in the media, like, you know, does the United States have have programs like this? Is everyone just flying balloons around in everyone else's airspace? Like, what are the actual international law that would cover something like this? Yeah, well, it actually turns out that there aren't a lot of norms in this in this exact space, which is part of the you know confusion and quandary I think around this incident. As you remember. After this balloon was shot down, it was discovered that there were a number of other obstacles or balloons or objects floating around in the in a similar space in the stratosphere. And those were also shot down. And it turned out, I think we found out eventually that one of them was likely a kind of a hobbyist uh, balloon. Uh, it's not really clear what the others were, but I think there's a there's a space in in sort of the airspace above where commercial air airliners usually fly and below outer space, right, where it's not totally clear what uh, the norms are. And so that was the space that the Chinese were exploiting. Um, you know, I think that it's also the case that these have been balloons that have been frequently flying in the last few years. And there were a number of them that flew over the U.S. Uh, earlier that nobody uh, apparently did anything about um, whether we knew about them or not. I think probably we did, but they've been, they were also uh, flying over other countries' airspaces, which we also knew about. So um, it's something that's been happening for at least a few years and not, not much has been done about it. And I think that um, is the space where there's an opportunity to do something about it if it hadn't been quite as, um, you know, quite as big a, a, a kind of kerfuffle as it was. Now, I have to sort of just come in here uh, and just mention that the Chinese did sort of make this comparison between their balloon program and U.S. surveillance and reconnaissance against China, like how many times U.S. aircraft or ships are you know, gathering information against China. And I always find it necessary, uh, if I can get on my soapbox for a second, to say that, you know, the United States is conducting those types of operations in international airspace and international waters, which I think is fundamentally different than what the Chinese were doing, which was over U.S. Um, you know, territory, though the Chinese might see it differently, might think, you know, it's the activity itself and not necessarily where the activity is taking place um, that is so important. So, you know, a lot of the reports told us that this wasn't the first time that the Chinese has sent a balloon uh, over the United States like this. 
uh, you know, we don't have a lot of details or a lot of statistics about how many times, but Tyler, like you mentioned, you know, this did become a bit of an incident. It was uh, more of a focus in the domestic discourse in the United States. Do you think it's important to ensure that these things like don't escalate to this type of level? Uh, you know, should should it have not been a flashpoint between the two countries? And if not, how do you think we can prevent these types of incidents from becoming uh, flashpoints or crises? I think there have to be really clear lines established by both sides of what they're willing to permit. Um, you could have, if you if both sides agreed to it, you could have some sort of open skies program in which both sides agree that it's um, permissible for you to collect intelligence via aircraft on military facilities in the other side. Um, something like this was proposed during the United States, uh, during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, but it's unlikely in my mind that China is going to permit such <laughs> uh, reciprocal action, nor is the United States really interested in it. So if that's the case, then uh, it needs to be clear in the minds of decision makers, both in Washington and in Beijing, um, that this type of thing is not going to be permitted. And the United States is going to can follow a similar course should another spy balloon show up uh, inside of its borders. So for both of you, if you had to, you know, just choose one side, like, do you do you think that the United States made too much of a big deal out of this or not enough of a big deal out of it? Just like a one sentence answer, because then I'm going to ping you on it to give further. But if you had to choose kind of one of those sides, which would it be? Did we, uh, did we let you say off? That we made, made too big a deal out of it and missed an opportunity to turn it into something positive? Too big of a deal. So Susan's on too big of a deal. Tyler? Um, for sake of a good discussion, I'll say that it was not too big. <laughs> it was the appropriate well, response. Well, okay. So I will tell you, this is one of my favorite things to do with panelists. Uh, are you ready? We're going to we're gonna play devil's advocate, in which I make each of you argue the opposite of what you think uh, in terms of like, what would the other side say to that argument? So Susan, can you tell us, try to make the argument, of course, we all know that you don't agree with this position, but what would the argument be for why the US response was appropriate? And then Tyler, can you tell us what the argument would be for of why this was such a big deal? Sure. Sure, so I'll go first. Um, so why the reaction was appropriate or at least understandable would be that the U.S. tried to communicate with the Chinese to get them to get the balloon out of our airspace to remedy their, um, you know, quote unquote mistake that they claimed had had happened. You know, the balloon had been abducted by the westerly winds and, you know, blown off course. So uh, we did try to get in touch with them. We got no response from the Chinese side for a long time. Meanwhile, media pressure is building on politicians, of course. In addition to that, there's apparently uh, a lot of evidence that the balloon was loitering over sensitive sites, um, sensitive military sites, you know, in the middle of the country. And there was a lot of, you know, suspicion at least that that was not accidental or that that was not part of the sort of being blown off course. The fact that the balloon was being blown off course and then loitering over, over a sensitive site. So all this time, again, not getting any response from uh, the Chinese side not being able to ascertain, you know, intentions or 
the future trajectory of this thing, I think um, it's completely understandable under pressure and, and sort of also in the environment we have currently in the U.S. of sort of political weaponization of these things. I think it's perfectly understandable. And the Biden administration was prudent. They waited until it you know, had drifted all the way off the coast and and then proceeded to take it down, um, you know, telling the Chinese that were, that's what they were planning. So I think um, all in all, it's it's sort of an understandable response. Okay, don't worry. I'll let you also voice the, the other view <laughs> okay. in a second. I'm just going to argue my point valiantly. I know it. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to live up to what Susan has just done uh, uh, for my side. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I always think it's important. A lot of these issues, I think one of the main reasons the main ways of making it so it doesn't become politicized is so that everyone has an understanding that multiple viewpoints are valid, even if you know we find the logic of one stronger than the other. So, Tyler, can you give us the the argument for why uh, the response was not appropriate? And the United States made too big of a deal out of this. Right. I mean, I think the most important thing to think about here is the cost that came to the United States. Right. So there was some opportunity, as Susan was alluding to, to diplomatically engage. This came right before an anticipated high level dialogue between the United States and China, uh, which was uh, delayed and the quality of dialogue degraded as the result of the U.S. decision. Um, and so if that cost is sufficiently high, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, could the United States have pursued something else? Uh, could it have allowed the balloon to uh, continue on its course? And uh, in that scenario, and obviously the whatever intelligence was collected uh, um, was already lost, um, um, but the United States did take measures um, because it was able to identify the balloon's path in order to mitigate whatever loss might have, have, have been occurring. Um, so at that point, shooting the balloon down only serves as some sort of signal for future um, establishing red lines for the, for the future. And if it was possible to also achieve those red lines uh, through diplomatic dialogue, um, then maybe that would, maybe shooting it down sort of in, uh, incites a response, provokes a response in Beijing that is um, uh, ultimately not worth what we got out of it. Okay. All right. So, so uh, you know, I made you kind of go against what you were thinking. So I'll give you the opportunity now. Susan, anything you want to add to the, you know, why did the United States make such a big deal out of this? And Tyler, anything you wanted to add to Susan's response of why the U.S. response was appropriate? Well, I think there was an opportunity to show some leadership and to make diplomacy, you know, to firmly plant the diplomatic flag here on this one. It it wasn't, you know, a, an overly sort of threatening um, act. It was something where the Chinese were clearly in the wrong and they admitted as such. I mean, in fact, the Chinese made, to my recollection, the first statement of regret uh, at, from the official, you know, podium that I can recall in my entire career. So, you know, I think they were really looking to de-escalate. They were trying to smooth the way for the Blinken visit. Um, that gives the United States some leverage in the relationship, which is something we're always looking for. And you know, to to squander that and then shoot the balloon down, it's it's your you know basically giving the Chinese leverage, which they then subsequently used to roll out a kind of a campaign around the world to say, look how you know militant and lacking in confidence the United States is, they had to shoot down a balloon. So I think you know the cost benefit for me was just not there. 
And if we had done it correctly, Susan, what, what do you think we should have used that leverage for? What would have been your first ask? Well, I think when Tony Blinken got to Beijing after this whole episode, he certainly could have, you know, put forward, look, there's, you know, instead of sort of demanding that they promise never to send a balloon over the United States again in order to have him come, you know, for the meeting, he could have gone to the meeting and then said, you know, we're going to set up a system here to to govern, you know, this airspace and make sure these um objects are not flown, that there are not these dangers to commercial aircraft and other things up there, and that this is something that really needs to be addressed. I mean, it would have been a good thing to try to, you know, get that laid down, um, you know, first between the U.S. and China, and then extend it to an international norm. I mean, I think that would really have have accomplished something, Mm -hmm. rather than where we are now, not talking to each other, uh, both kind of retreating to our corners and not clear when we're going to have any diplomatic communication again. So before we get to the communication channels, Tyler, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything you want to add on the sort of appropriateness of the U.S. response that you think we haven't covered? Sure. I mean, I think Susan Susan obviously raises a very important point regarding the way that the Chinese states uh, responded to the incident. That being said, it was also presented alongside what was really a bold-faced lie, right? Um, um, Insinuating that the balloon did not have some sort of intelligence collection capability associated with it, um, I think made in the eyes of contemporary decision makers and and myself, it a little bit difficult to see the statement of regret in the same light. Um, And then ultimately, There is a question about U.S. credibility if the United States is not willing to impose costs um, uh, if China takes these types of actions. So that's where I come out on things. All right, good. So let's move on a bit to talk about these communication channels because this is a hot topic. Susan mentioned that we don't have a lot of uh, you know diplomatic now interaction with the Chinese. We know that during the Cold War. Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union had developed various mechanisms for crisis communication and standards for operation to keep the Cold War cold. I remember I was doing archival work for my first book and uh, reading through some of the archives in the Vietnam War. It was so surprising to me the really direct conversation that China and the so uh, sorry that the United States and the Soviet Union would have about like when the United States was going to bomb parts of Vietnam. Right. So can you tell us a bit about the state of U.S.-China diplomatic relations. Can you tell me a bit about what is the state of the communication between the United States uh, and and China, and where should it go? Sorry, Oriana, was that for me or for Susan? Why don't we start with Susan and kind of where things are compared to, you know, where things were with the Soviet Union, Um, and then maybe, Tyler, you can offer some views on how we can get to a better place. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the communication between the U.S. and China is just filled at this point with mutual suspicion and uh, kind of uh, uh, daily resistance to talking, to understanding one another and real, um, you know, expectation that the other has just malign intentions uh, toward the other. And that's a real difference. There's also a problem that I see in uh, inequality between the U.S. and China in the 
sort of confidence level in communications. If you compare US-China communications with US-Soviet communications, with, with which you know I have some familiarity, I had worked in the former Soviet Union and in Russia, the Russians are um, mu- see themselves much more on an equal footing with the United States in diplomatic encounters. I mean, strange as it may seem, we think of China as being you know, so much stronger um, you know, in many respects than the Soviet Union was, even at the height of the Cold War. But the Russians really had a kind of confidence to their diplomacy that you never see and have I've never seen with China. I mean, if you just look at kind of bridge-to-bridge communications between um, uh, Soviet and U.S. mariners out in like the Mediterranean during the height of the Cold War and the kinds of exchanges they had, I mean, it was real bravado and a lot of, um, you know, kind of ribbing and joking in a very kind of confident way. And we we just don't have that kind of same rapport between the U.S. and China. And in fact, now, um, as you mentioned, Oriana, I mean, diplomatic communication is almost um, is almost negligible. And I think the Chinese see these efforts that the U.S. is making to so-called keep the lines of communication open or set up crisis management channels, they see that as a disadvantage to China, which is, you know, a real problem in dealing with these kinds of incidents that we've been talking about. So Tyler, how do you, you know, you know, I know this was probably a lot years ago, but I remember reading a paper of yours about sort of diplomatic interactions between China Oh, right. Right. So, I mean, do you have any sort of interesting comparisons to offer to us about, you know, how this is similar or different to maybe not even U.S. Soviet Union, but other comparisons and then ideas for how to try to move the relationship forward? Well, frankly, I'm not as familiar with uh, U.S. Soviet military to military communications or crisis uh, communications. Um, On the U.S. China side, though, It is striking that this is quite similar to other crises we've seen in the past, right? The style of communication and the inability to get messages at lower levels of government to Beijing during the recent balloon incident is very reminiscent of what happened in the 2001 EP3 crisis. Um, You can draw similar analogies if you go back further in history, right? So there's a similar story during the 1969 send us with a border crisis in which senior levels on the political side of the Soviet Union tried to reach decision makers in Beijing, both Mao and Zhou, uh, but were shot down by telephone operators uh, who refused to uh, patch the call through. So it, it makes me somewhat pessimistic, probably more pessimistic than I was when I wrote that paper as a first year graduate student that you read um, about whether or not the normal types of hotlines and um, uh, low-level horizontal communications between the two sides are really the best way. Um, well, they might be the best way, but are a realistic way which we can diffuse crises in the future. Um, it seems to me that there's something um, there's something going on on the Chinese side which is not necessarily going to be fixed by the establishment of some sort of mechanism or protocol, because one does exist, right? We know that since 2007, there's been a military hotline between Beijing and Washington, but um, it reportedly was uh, tried, uh, the Pentagon tried to use it during the recent crisis, and um, much like 2001, uh, before the hotline had been established. 
um, Paging just refused to take the call. So I have now what I like to call the lightning round, okay, of a series of questions. Some very serious, some less serious, but I think equally as interesting and important about this balloon incident. And then we will conclude with uh, the last lightning round question I'll tell you now is, is there anything that you wanna add that you think hasn't been covered in this conversation? So that is kind of a catch-all for you to talk about whatever you wanna talk about. But I have like five questions here, all right? Are you guys ready? And by lightning round, does that mean you want like five second responses? Or I want like like 10 second, 10 to 15 <laughs> second responses. I mean, we are like kind of academics after all. I mean, you know, one second responses, who knows? Um, so maybe we'll switch off. We'll start when I ask a question. First, Susan responds. The second question, Tyler responds first. You both will respond, but Susan will respond first, then Tyler will go back and forth. Okay, Susan. Should the United States have its own balloon program? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, I think the answer to that depends on what it is that we think we can gain from this versus what would be lost. And I would probably say that, I, the, you know, the, again, the cost benefit for me is not there. Tyler. Um, I'll, I'll be uncharacteristically on that or uncharacteristically unacademic. Um, no. Okay. Now, second question. Should we shoot down all the balloons we see? No. <laughs> Tyler. Probably not. <laughs> if the United States did establish a new military force known as the balloon force, what do you think the <laughs> uniform should look like? The Michelin man. Um, the costume from the up character in the Pixar movie. Fantastic. All right. Now we've we both sort of, I think we've all agreed that cutting diplomatic ties in this instant was not a good idea. When do you think the United States should cut off diplomatic engagement with China? Are there certain conditions you have in mind or certain levels, like if they did this, then sure it makes sense. Or do you think it's never a tactic the United States should employ? Yeah, basically never. Someone wrote a book about maintaining diplomatic ties and communications uh, during wartime. It was, was a brilliant so. book, someone would say. Yeah. I think it was called The Cost of Conversation. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great answer, everyone. The answer is uh, read Oriana <laughs> Schuyler Mastro's book, The Cost of Conversation. Obstacles Even better, to buy it. <laughs> yeah, buy it and then and then read it. Um, this is one of my, was China, I know, Susan, you mentioned China, you know, was sorry. And Tyler, you kind of said, yeah, they said they were sorry, but it's kind of like how my two-year-old apologizes. Like, yeah, you know, then they said it, but they didn't do it anyway. So was China sorry enough? It should have been enough to get us to engage diplomatically, in my view. Now they'll never be regretful over anything ever again. Mm -hmm. Um. I would have liked to see more sincerity on the Chinese side. If this balloon incident becomes a major Hollywood movie, which nowadays with all the crap that you can see on streaming services, this might happen. Who do you think should play the balloon hero in this movie? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wait, who is the balloon hero, though? No, I don't know. Like, he's the, the whole... one that's like gonna. He, they're probably gonna like shoot him in a jetpack towards the balloon, and he takes the Terminator. Right. Clearly, you know, versus a <laughs> missile, like it'll be something. I mean, that's what makes the the whole situation potentially less the uh, escalatory, right? Because it was unmanned. Um, right. 
But here, yeah. for some reason, there's some tick, you know, time is running out and they've got to shoot a man, you know, into the um, who's balloon hero. Uh, who's the balloon hero? Uh, let's say Jim Carrey. Okay, good. I, I always go with Liam Neeson because like uh, Liam Neeson's my favorite action star. All right. We have two minutes left. Is there anything here? And we can start with Tyler and then end with Susan that you want to add to this discussion that you think the, the viewers should know about the balloon incident and crisis management and communication between China and the United States more broadly? Sure. I mean, the one thing that we didn't really touch on very much was the bureaucratic coordination side of things. And this is something I think Susan alluded to it a little bit, um, but I very much agree here. It, it does seem to me that there was some sort of miscalculation or miscommunication inside of the Chinese government, um, characteristic of what happened in the 2001 EP3 crisis, um, which I think going back to our conversation about how do you establish hotlines or channels of communication to keep uh, bilateral relations stable in the event of something like this happening in the future, it is a real challenge, I think. And I think from Washington's perspective, we should be planning and thinking about how do you diffuse crises and uh, assuming that you're not going to get low-level responses for potentially a couple of days. Hmm. Susan, last words. Yeah, I mean, on that, you know, Think about the media pressure and the timelines that are different between China and the U.S. That's number one. Number two, diplomacy is not about truth. It's about finding a way to manage a situation so you can maximize your interests at the end of the day. And so I think taking advantage of, of, of any opportunities, um, you know, in, in the current situation, which is pretty dynamic and pretty filled with tension, we need to do that. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end this program. Thank you, Tyler and Susan, for joining me. We've covered a lot of different uh, topics today that hopefully give our viewers a sense of the strategic importance of this incident, as well as what it means for crises and flashpoints for the United States and China moving forward. Thank you. If you enjoyed this discussion, make sure to listen to Assignment China, an oral history of American correspondence in China on NCUSCR interviews wherever you get your podcasts.